Good morning, everybody. We left off with uh, um, chapter 8, verse 4, I believe. And so we'll take up from there. Okay. But first we'll take refuge and generate bodhicitta and so on. So visualize the merit field and the space in front. yourselves surrounded by all the sentient beings who all want happiness and not suffering, but not understanding the cause of happiness or even misunderstanding the cause of happiness. We as sentient beings continually create the cause for more misery. And so seeing that, we generate compassion and wanting to act upon that, with that compassion to alleviate dukkha. For that reason, we take refuge. So when we generate compassion as a cause for bodhicitta, we have to be very clear what compassion is. So it's not pity. Yeah, We're not feeling sorry for sentient beings. Oh, those poor sentient beings. But we, you know, as if we were somebody superior to them who has it all figured out. No, if we don't have great compassion, if we don't have the wisdom realizing emptiness, we don't have it all figured out. And if we do have it all figured out, then we've overcome the cause of arrogance. And there's not going to be any arrogance there. So when we're generating compassion, it's one person to another, we're all equal. So we don't pity other people and help them because we feel sorry for them. But rather we respect them and because 
we respect that they have the potential to become fully awakened, then we reach out and do what we can to be of benefit. Because it doesn't matter whose suffering it is. If it's suffering, if it's the dukkha of samsara, it's something to eliminate. So when we see our own dukkha, we have to remember this is the same as the dukkha, the misery of all other sentient beings. And when we generate compassion for others, we have to see that the dukkha they're experiencing is exactly the same as ours. That we are... uh, not superior in any way. So when we work to be of service to others, it's like the hand pulling the thorn out of the foot. The hand just does it, and it's over. The hand does not go on some big trip about how fantastic it is and so compassionate to help the stupid foot that again stepped on the thorn. There's none of that. And so when we serve others, There shouldn't be any of that either. So with that kind of compassion, we generate bodhicitta. And with bodhicitta, we partake in the Buddhist teachings, having this wonderful text of Shantidevas to study. Okay, so uh, since we only uh, covered three verses last time, I thought maybe I should read them again uh, to remind us where we're at. So having so this is the chapter on meditation, and specifically here, uh, how to develop concentration. You know as the second of the three higher trainings in order to develop wisdom and then to combine serenity and insight uh, to gain the realizations of emptiness. So the chapter starts out, having developed uh, joyous effort in this way, I should place my mind in concentration. 
for the person whose mind is distracted dwells between the fangs of disturbing conceptions. True, isn't it? Yeah. So now everybody wants to run off to a cave and do meditation on serenity and gain serenity ASAP. Okay, then what are you going to do the day after you gain serenity? What are you going to do? Do you know what to do? Do you know how to use the serenity once you've gained it? Okay, because serenity, yeah, shamatha, is is not a particularly Buddhist practice. The Hindus practice it, sometimes the Christians do, yeah. So serenity is a tool, yeah, to to gain and and deepen the realizations of other aspects of the path. It's not an aim in itself because you will just, just with serenity itself, you take rebirth in the form of formless realms and then after that, kaplunk, okay, because you haven't developed wisdom or, or bodhicitta, okay? So that's why our teachers usually encourage us to develop all the different aspects of the path and to have a clear idea of what the path is so that we stay on the path to liberation and awakening and don't just uh, get blissed out in serenity. Okay. Okay, however, through solitude of body and mind, no distraction will occur. Therefore, I should forsake the worldly life and completely discard distorted conceptions. So distorted conceptions, I think here it's real, it's referring to afflictions, okay? Forsake the worldly life. That doesn't mean that you go off and find the nearest cave. Uh, I hear we have one just below the abbey. I've never been there, but, you know, no, you've been there, nothing much. Okay. Yeah, well, it doesn't have your air con and your and your um, down comforter and everything in it yet. Uh, Okay. Um, Okay, so it isn't just running off and saying, I can't stand people, I can't stand this world. You know, I'm blocking it all out. It's what abandon the worldly life means abandon the worldly life in our mind. Okay, because we're the one who's addicted to the worldly life. Yeah. As long as we have that attachment, it doesn't matter whether we're living in the middle of Manhattan or we're living in our cave, we're still going to have attachment to worldly things. Okay. They say that the hardest thing for uh, meditators to give up is uh, pride and arrogance, attachment to reputation, because you're up there in your cave, you know, and you're skinny as all could be, but you're thinking, I hope everybody in town knows what a, a great ascetic practice, practitioner I am. Yeah. So, uh, you know, wanting to have a good reputation with the people in town, in town, maybe they'll bring you some chocolate chip cookies when they come uh, and something else. 
to eat. And uh, yeah, so you got it good then. You know, they'll bring a, a refrigerator and you know a generator, so you have uh, electricity to operate it and everything like that. Okay, so the worldly life is our mind. Yeah. Now, to eliminate that worldly life in our mind, we have to create some space between us and the things that we're completely addicted to and attached to. So that's the reason, for example, why many people take uh, monastic precepts, because they the precepts limit the things that we come in contact with and guide us upon in terms of how to relate to the things that we do come in contact with. Okay. Uh, so it's not the objects that are bad and wrong, okay, and to be abandoned. It's the mind that clings to them, that misconceives them, that gets angry at them. Okay. This morning I was... Uh, reading a little bit from Lama Yeshi's uh, teachings on Manjushri in preparation for the retreat. And the first talk he gave uh, was about, not about refuge, the title is Refuge, but it was about refuge, but he uh, was talking about what it means to practice the Dharma. Yeah, And so I thought just to uh, read that whole talk to you, there's no way I can imitate Lama's talk, but, you know, his voice and everything. But it's uh, his way of saying, you know, you've got to get it clear in your mind how to develop the path, yeah, and how to have a happy life while you're doing it without, you know, pushing so that you're a neurotic mess, and without just being lackadaisical, you know, how to have a balanced life. Okay. Then verse 3 said, Worldly life is not forsaken because of attachment to people and due to craving for material gain and the like. So you'll notice he say, Worldly life is not forsaken because of attachment and due to craving, okay, the object, here he said attachment to people, the people aren't the problem, it's the attachment. The craving is the problem, not the material gain and the like, okay? But like I said, when we're completely, you know, overwhelmed by attachment, we need to separate ourselves from the things that we're very attached to. I mean, that's why when you ordain, you don't, you, it's called going forth. You're leaving the family life. You're moving out of your parents' house and the family house, and you're embarking on a different way. Okay. So worldly life is not forsaken because of attachment to people and due to craving for material gain and the like. Therefore, I should entirely forsake these things, for in this way, uh, for this is the way in which the wise behave. So the wise are the Aryas, the ones who have seen emptiness directly. 
Okay, then verse 4 says, having understood that afflictions and disturbing conceptions are completely overcome by, by insight endowed with serenity. Yeah, so you have, it's, it says having understood. So that means first we have to understand how, um, disturb, how afflictions are overcome by insight, yeah? And this insight is conjoined with serenity. So we have to understand here how ignorance um, and how the afflictions misconceive objects, okay? How ignorance, you know, grasps them to inherently exist, how the afflictions grasp them to, uh, you know, to be inherently pleasurable or inherently evil and awful, okay? And so we need to understand why why we need to get rid of, of ignorance. And to do that, we have to have some idea what ignorance is. And that is not so easy to identify. Yeah, we say ignorance, ignorance, ignorance. And we think, oh, you don't know all the presidents of the United States, so you failed your sixth grade um, social studies class, the, the, the test. No, we're not talking about that kind of ignorance. Okay, what is the ignorance that is the source of the afflictions? What does it do? What does it look like when it's in our mind? And one of the reasons it's so difficult to to identify is because it's almost always there. And even if it isn't there, the appearance of inherent existence is there. And so we just think, yeah, this is the way everything exists. Yeah, this, this is it. We never question. We never question. Yeah. I mean, when we get angry on a gross level, we never think, oh, my, my uh, perception of the situation is unrealistic. Yeah. When you're angry, do you ever think, oh, I'm not seeing things correctly? No. When we're angry, I am right. It's very clear. It is inherently existent, right? Okay. And the problem is everybody else doesn't see that. Yeah. But how we conceive the rightness of our position, how we conceive the person that is so right, we don't question that. Yeah. I'm right. Maybe you start once in a while to to question the rightness of it, you know, maybe a little bit. Well, maybe I misunderstood. But do you ever question the person who is sure that they're right? How that person appears to you? Do, do we ever uh, think that, you know, how I'm holding that myself to exist is incorrect? 
how the eye is appearing to me is also false? No, never change that. Yeah, we feel there's an eye in here, a big one. Yeah. That we're sure is there. But when somebody makes that eye visible to us by annoying us, for example, we don't question how we're grasping the eye at that moment. In fact, we don't even notice it. We're totally focused, again, on the outside, trying to get the other person to change or get the other person to understand us or something. Yeah. So this feeling of the I, the self, as independent. Yeah. I don't depend. I, I exist. That's it. I don't depend on anything. I'm not here because the causes and conditions for me exist. I am just plain old here. Yeah. And I... I am me. Okay. And you are you. And everybody has this independent I that should be able to control the body and mind, should be able to control the world. We try hard enough, but it can't. But we still think that it should. We, We don't give up our, our, uh, understanding, that's no, not an understanding, our, our image of what the I is, even when we see information that is counter to how we think of it. Yeah. Yeah. When we, when we understand this, then we can understand political, people's uh, political opinions much, much better. How they can have certain evidence and believe in something that's the opposite. Because we do it too. Yeah. All we have to do is think a little bit, and we realize that we are not something independent of all other factors. Yeah. We can get some general idea of that. But does that change our view of who we are? No. Okay. So we, we manage somehow to hold two contradictory things in the mind at the same time, which is why we need to deepen our understanding of emptiness, to get an inferential uh, cognition, to get direct perception. Yeah, because when it's still at the level of assumption and when it's still just this nice kind of feeling that doesn't make us feel threatened at all, then, then it's okay, yeah. But as soon as uh, we start to think, oh, maybe I don't exist the way I appear to exist. Maybe there's not this I that's the whole foundation of my being. You know, then, you know, and you get the story of the guy who grasped onto his donka, his donka to make sure he still existed. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to prove that you still exist. Yeah, you have a torn donka. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. Okay, now, verse 4. Having understood that disturbing conceptions are completely overcome by superior insight endowed with serenity. Okay, so we need the unity of serenity and insight. Yeah, and we'll get into later what exactly that means uh, to overcome the afflictions and especially the ignorance. So first of all, I should search for serenity or advise to develop serenity first. And this is achieved through the general joy of those unattached to the worldly life. So if we want to gain serenity, we have to first work on loosening our attachment to worldly life. Okay. So here comes one of the verses from the ordination ceremony, which we chanted last week, but we will chant again. I don't know, did, uh, yeah, it's coming? Okay. So this verse is really, again, emphasizing, and we did it last time, but it's good to remember it, yeah, that uh, we need integrity and aspirations, yeah, Uh, integrity to keep our precepts well, to keep our values, and aspirations to really fulfill those and even to grow beyond them. So the verse, (laughs) guard integrity and aspiration. Then how do we do that? Cut the bonds of family and kin. Yeah, it's it's quite direct. So here, this is for people who are taking monastic precepts. It doesn't mean other people uh, aren't included in this, you know, but uh, it's done especially before you take precepts. Okay, cut the bond of, of family and kin. What happens if you don't cut the bond of family and kin? I see some people, yeah. There's some attachment, isn't there? You know, and I care about them and I want to make them happy and I want their approval. And, you know, what's going to happen when they're old and they don't have anybody else to take care of them? And I should be there and do that. And, uh, you know, they want to be proud of me, so I should do what makes them proud of me. Uh, and, you know, practicing the Dharma is not what they had in mind for my career choice, so maybe I should do something else. Um, you know, there's a lot of attachment. And then you get involved in all the family dramas, okay? So it's not just how you relate to the family, but then, you know, uh, this cousin with that aunt and your brother with your sister and two, the two of them with your mother and father and who has dramas and who was disrespectful of the other one and who feels left out and, you know, and, and, you know, they, they need to vent and they want somebody to talk to and, and, uh, you don't have a family. 
because uh, you're e even you're monastic, you don't have a family, so you're a good person for them to vent on. You have more time, they think. Yeah, and then uh, and then it goes, and and you have all of that stuff, and you know, and then our attachment. Oh, the family's not in harmony. What can I do? Maybe I should do this, you know. And they want you to go on a cruise with them, or they want you to go backpacking with them, and. You know, anyway, I think you get the idea, huh? Okay. Um, so that's why it says, cut the bonds of family and kin. Leave your worldly home to practice the Dharma. Why can't you stay in your worldly home to practice the Dharma? When you ordain, why can't you live with your family? Why not? Yeah, yeah. But they'll cook for you and they'll clean for you and then you have all the time in the world to practice because they'll take care of everything and you don't have to go to work because they want to have you around. Yeah, so you get involved a little bit. It's not going to hurt anything. Huh? Huh? Yeah? No, why not? Because they're, they're still attached and you're still attached. Yeah. So, no matter how much you pretend play, there's the attachment there. Okay, so leave your worldly home. So this is a case of where you need to live separately. Yeah. That doesn't mean you go to the monastery and start getting attached to everybody in the monastery. Because that becomes just as problematic. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have our own special friend in the monastery that we get attached to. Okay. So leave the worldly home to practice the Dharma. Aspire to lead all beings to full awakening. So this is for taking the Pratimoksha vows. But you can see already, yeah, the Dharma Guptaka is priming us for the bodhisattva path, yeah, by saying, aspire to lead all beings to liberation. Okay, so let's chant that, yeah, and think about it and how it applies to our own lives. Guard integrity and aspiration, cut the bonds of family again. Leave your worldly home to practice the Dharma. Aspire to lead all beings to full awakening. Guard integrity and aspiration, cut the bonds of family and kin. Leave your worldly home to practice the Dharma. Aspire to lead all beings to full awakening. Guard integrity and aspiration. Cut the bonds of family and kin. Leave your worldly home to practice the Dharma. Aspire to lead all beings to full awakening. powerful verse. Does leave your worldly home to practice the Dharma mean you never speak to your family again? 
No, it doesn't mean that. Yeah. You're always their son or daughter, you know, whatever relationship you are to them. Yeah. Doesn't mean that how you speak to them and how you're involved with them changes? Yes. Okay. But it, to, to do that, it takes a lot of work on our behalf. And here is where the equanimity meditation is very important. Okay. To cut the attachment to, uh, the people that we are attached to, that we think are the friends and the relatives. Yeah. To balance out the, uh, the anger, the, animosity we towards we have towards the people who uh, act in the opposite way and also to overcome the apathy that makes us just think <laughs> they're all equal so I don't care about any of them okay so we, we have to get rid of of those three and here's where uh, an understanding of rebirth I think can be very helpful yeah so we may start out with uh, meditating on how even in this life the roles change. And then from there thinking about how they change in, uh, from one life to the next. So in, in this life, we can see how people we were very close to, our best friends in first grade, yeah, very few of us are still in touch with our best friends from first grade. Some people are, but very few. Yeah. Um, how about our enemies in first grade? The people that, you know, made fun of us or bullied us or scored higher than we did. You know, those enemies, those people we were jealous of. Yeah. Are they still our enemies? No, we probably have lost touch with them too. Okay, so why why do we uh, think that, oh, well, this person helps me, so they are fantastic and worthy of my attachment, but this person harmed me, so they are worthy of getting hit by a truck ASAP. Yeah, why, you know? People go from friend to stranger. They go from enemy to stranger. Sometimes they even go from friend to enemy. Okay. That's what's ha- what happens when, when people get divorced, usually. You go from that person being the one you're attached to to the person who you just can't stand. Amazing how the mind changes so so. So, you know, so much like that. Why? Why does the mind change like that? You know, if we thought this person was just inherently fantastic, yeah, if they really had all those qualities that I thought they had, how come they acted like this? Yeah. And then we get mad at them for not living according to our image of who we think they should be. Yeah. They probably still had that same quality before or even during the time when we were like head over heels with them. 
But why is it a problem now? Because that quality is coming out in relationship to us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when we really think even in this life, how the relationships change. People can be enemy one time and then they become a very dear friend later on. That's probably happened in our lives too. Uh, And so if people change these roles and our feelings change towards them change so dramatically, what is the use of being attached to some and uh, having animosity towards others? There's no use. It doesn't make any sense at all. Because you just wait a while and the whole thing's going to change again. Okay. Then the danger is that we just go into apathy. I don't care. Yeah. I'm going to be a bump on a log in my cave, separate from all sentient beings, experiencing my own bliss. Who cares about those people? Well, as long as they bring me food and as long as they do this and that, 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 to that extent, to the extent that they benefit me, I care about them. After that, forget it. Okay. So that's not a very good idea, is it? To feel that way towards other people. Especially since our whole life is dependent on them. Yeah. So this equanimity meditation really evening out our feelings so we're, we're not like an emotional yo-yo depending on who we meet every day. Yeah. That's, this is quite important. And if we look from one life to the other, then it becomes even more evident. Because whoever, when you think of the person that you, you love the most, you know, who's the most dear one to you in this life, yeah. Were they the dearest one to you in your previous life? Are they always the person who's going to be your dear one? Do you know who they were in their previous life? Do you know who you were in your previous life? Do you know that even they knew each other then? Yeah. I mean, often the person we're close to in one life, in the next life, we are born universes apart or in different realms. Yeah. So there's no guarantee that uh, the person we're, we feel close to this life is, you know, that we're going to be soulmates. Oh, I love that expression. Yeah. When one Buddhist friend told me that he had met his soulmate, I said, you're a Buddhist. You don't believe in souls. <laughs> Supposedly, you don't believe in souls, but you seem to have some grasping here. Yeah. yeah. We do have, have that feeling, you know, like I'm so close to them. We're always going to be together in all of our lives. Yeah. Even I'm born a human and they're born as a mosquito. Get away. (laughs) I don't want you to, you know. 
yes, you were my lover in a previous life, but you can't eat my blood now, you know. Do we have the same feeling when we're born in different realms? Do you even recognize anybody? I mean, we've all known each other and been everything to each other in previous lives. Do you recognize anybody here from from your previous life? You know? Oh, I know you. You were the one who sold me the used car that broke down. (laughs) Yeah. I said I would never forget you, and I remember you from one life to the next. Sure. Okay. Yeah? About becoming attached to your teacher. That is something to be careful of, too. Okay? The The relationship with the teacher is very special, and there's a kind of love involved in the sense that Uh, You revere that person tremendously. You respect them. You see uh, you're grateful for how much they benefit you. Yeah. And with that kind of attitude, there's a certain kind of love that that comes in the sense of wanting them to be happy. If you expect your teacher to fulfill your emotional needs, that's when a lot of attachment comes. Or if you expect your teacher's status to rub off upon you to make you more important, then that's where attachment comes in. So, uh, you know, or when we, we do all, all of our acrobatics to win our teacher's approval out of attachment, because we're attached to approval, not because we respect our teachers so much, but because we want their approval, okay? So these kinds of things muddy the, the love for the teacher and, and create some kind of attachment, yeah? So you, we want to be careful of that. It means we still serve our teacher, yeah? It doesn't mean, oh, well, I'm not attached to you anymore, so... Uh, Bye, I'm going to go off and do this and this and that and that, and I'll come back when I feel like it. No, because you have a totally different kind of relationship with your teacher that, you know, is there's some incredible closeness because that person is, really understands your spiritual yearning and because they really want to help you. So there's some very close connection there. Yeah but it's not one that you want to be of attachment because then you just start competing with all the other disciples. Yeah. I, I've told you enough of my stories of competition, you know. I mean, the classic one is, you know, my teacher says, uh, bring me a cup of tea, and I go to the kitchen, and I want to get everybody else out of the kitchen because I'm going to make the cup of tea, because he asked me to create the cup of tea. Yeah? And I want to be the one who creates this, makes this magnificent tea and brings it in with such incredible reverence so that my teacher looks at me and says, that's the best disciple I have. Ooh! 
So everybody else, get out of the kitchen because this is what I want to do, you know. And that doesn't usually go over very well. Okay? For those of us who have tried that, you know. There's other ways. It's not just making uh, cups of tea. There's other ways of doing it. Unfortunately, I can tell you too many stories, personal stories about that one. Okay? The result is don't do it. (laughs) Okay. So this is achieved through the genuine joy of those unattached to worldly life. Yeah, for us, we think, how can you have general, genuine joy without the mind hankering for worldly life? How, what, what other pleasure could there be besides chocolate? Well, sex, okay. Then what other pleasure could there be besides sex? There's nothing. Well, chocolate. And you go back and forth. Chocolate, chocolate, chocolate sex. Then on a hot day, your refuge is in aircon. On a cold day, your refuge is the heater. Yeah. And we think those things are the greatest amount of pleasure and happiness we can ever have. And that's, you know, because we have very limited minds. And we only think of this life. We only think of what our senses perceive. And even when we hear about the true paths and true cessations, the last two of the four truths, we go, too difficult. Yeah. We hear about the bliss of full awakening. You know, impossible. Because to attain full awakening, you have to cherish everybody else more than yourself. No way! If I don't cherish myself foremost, I'm going to be miserable. Okay, so you see how our own wrong conceptions get in in the way of, of our practice? Next verse, verse 5. Because of the obsession one transient being has for other transient beings, they will not see their beloved ones again for many thousands of lives. Okay. Now here, the, the, you know, because of obsession, one transient being, here it's referring to me, okay, to oneself, has for other transient beings. And here it's referring to family and friends, all the people we love and cherish and we don't, who we don't want to be separated from. Okay? So because of our obsession with them, yeah, we don't like to think I'm obsessed with them. If you don't like thinking obsession, think very deep attachment that doesn't want to be separated from them. Yeah, you think, oh, I'm not obsessed with them. But do I want to be with them? Yeah. Do I want them to approve of me? Do I want to please them? Yeah. 
Okay, so that's what we're getting at. Yeah. Do I want mom still to do the laundry for me? Mm. Do I want dad to take out the garbage? Mm. Yeah. Or maybe you have a different family. Do I want dad to do the laundry for me? Mm -hmm. Do I want mom to take out the garbage? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So we're not really seeing our obsession with of one transient being, me, towards other transient beings. Yeah, wanting to be with them. Yeah. And how much, uh, you know, we all want to belong, don't we? There's a very strong feeling of, in us that wants to be, to, to belong, that wants to be, feel loved, that wants to feel that people care about us. Okay, and as an infant, um, we need to bond with our mother, whoever our primary care uh, caretaker is. You know, for healthy lives, babies need to do that. Yeah, but it's the attachment that comes after that that creates the difficulties. Okay, so the the thing is how to be close. Yeah, but without being attached. Yeah, how to belong without being trapped. Because sometimes when we belong to a certain group, then we have to go along with their group think. Yeah, I mean, right now in certain political parties, there's a loyalty test. And you have to pass that to be part of that. It's not an actual test. It's, but, uh, yeah. Okay. So because of the obsession one transient being has for another trans, for other transient beings, yeah, they will not see their beloved ones, again, for many thousands of lives. Why not? Yeah. Because it's karma that determines our rebirth, not our attachment to loved ones that determines where we're going to be reborn. It's the karma we create. Who do we create a lot of karma with? the people we're attached to, and the people who we don't like. So in this life, we create negative karma in terms of some people, and then we experience the, life, the result of that karma in future lives. And that karma can make us be born in totally different realms of existence, so for thousands, not just thousands of lives, thousands of eons, we don't even meet the person or people that we were so attached to in this life. And even when we do, we don't recognize them because our mind is too obscured. Okay, so there's somebody that you're very attached to this life or maybe this way. 
somebody who you were so close to and attached to in a previous life, if they're uh, a homeless person sitting on the street in downtown and you walk by, are you going to recognize them? That this was my mother, father, sister, brother, lover, husband, wife, child, whatever they were, best friend. Are you going to recognize them? That person sitting on the street, homeless, dirty. Are you going to recognize that mosquito? You know? No, we're not going to recognize them. We're going to, you know, because of obscuration in our mind, we're going to see them as inherently existent beings for whatever they appear to our senses to be in that lifetime. Yeah? So in that way, we don't meet them. Yeah? When we die, the the eye of this life is over. The When they die, the eye of that life is over. Yeah, there's a continuity, but we don't get reborn with the same personality and the same likes and dislikes and so on as in uh, our previous lives. Yeah. Sarah, when your kids were born, did they pop out and say, Hi, Mom. I remember you from a past life. You were my whatever. No, but there was an intuition that they were fully loaded and one of them was going to be a monk. (laughs) 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 And the other one's first words were, more. (laughs) She was not going to be the monk. (laughs) (laughs) But when they first were born, before those attributes shown up, shared. You know, you probably, I, okay, he, him, he, he, he stared at me for an hour and it felt like a, a certain kind of recognition. Eyes open for an hour. That's very unusual. So, yeah. Do you remember doing do you, that? Do you remember doing that? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember knowing your mother from a previous life? Yes. And the answer is no, I don't remember from a previous life, but there did seem to be karmic something. Yeah. All, they're fully loaded somehow, yeah. both kids. We have karma with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. With That's scary. We do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You had karma with your daughter too. So. Yeah, everyone here. Okay. So we may not see each other for quite a long time because of the karma we create in relationship to each other. Okay. Then verse 6. And now we're really getting into it. Not seeing them, I am unhappy. I want to see my family. Yeah, I haven't seen them for, it doesn't matter if it's one month, one year, or, you know, 15 years. When I want to see them, I want to see them. And I'm unhappy if I can't. Yeah, or my best friend who I confide in, yeah, who I tell everything to, 
I want to see them now, and, you know, they aren't around. Now, what happens when the people we care for uh, die? I mean, we grieve. What are we grieving? Yeah, we're not grieving the past, because the past is over and done with. We're grieving the future that we will not have with them. So in our mind, there was an image of the kind of future we would have with them in it and us seeing them and belonging and being happy and having Christmas together. And (laughs) sorry, I have to make faces once in a while. Um, You know, having Christmas together, doing everything together and, but then they die and they're not there. Yeah. And they say that the first, the first year where you go through all the holidays of the year without that person who you care about being in your life, you know, that that's really difficult because you come to that day, you know, you come to Christmas and then your mind goes back. And I remember Christmas, and we all sang Christmas carols and, you know, gave each other presents, and we all ate whatever you eat, you know. And, oh, my, my, it pulls my heartstrings with nostalgia and attachment. I want to recreate that situation again. But that person's dead. They aren't going to be there. Yeah. So not seeing them, I am unhappy, and my mind cannot be settled in equipoise. Okay, so when that longing to be with them is there, then our our mind cannot properly settle in meditation. Yeah. Because our mind is going, oh, I want to be with them. Yeah. Or they said this to me. What did they really mean when they said those words? They've never spoken to me like that before. What does that mean? And then we start analyzing. Yeah, some of us are very good analyzers. We sit and go round and around and around. Well, somebody looked at me and said, good morning, in that certain way. What did they mean by it? Yeah. And we analyze, like, what what did they really mean when they said that? Or somebody says, "Uh, I'll talk to you later. I have to do something now. And, oh, they were rejecting me. They didn't want to be with me. What did I do? Nothing. They have something else to do. But we analyze, don't we? There must be some hidden meaning. Yeah. Okay, and so the mind can't remain settled. Even if I see them, you know, I want to see them so badly. Even if I see them, there is no satisfaction. Why not? Because as before, now I'm tormented by craving. I see them and it fulfilled my needs and I want to be with them again. And then it just feeds the craving. Yeah. So they say that following attachment to 
to external things is like drinking salt water. Yeah, the more you drink salt water, the thirstier you get. So the more we, you know, uh, have this this attachment with other people, the more we want to be with them, and the, the deeper the the clinging can be. Okay. So it's really important to understand this correctly because sometimes we hear these teachings and then we think, okay, I can't talk to those people ever again. Yeah, just finished, basta finito, I'm never talking to them again. That doesn't solve the problem because as long as our mind is attached, we're going to have daydreams and we're going to have interruption in our meditation. The way to do it, you know, well, the ultimate um, antidote is the realization of emptiness, but that's a little bit advanced. So we can start with just contemplating uh, impermanence, for example. If we contemplate impermanence, who is it that I'm so attached to? They're changing in every single moment. And at death, there's going to be a big change. So, you know, who who am I actually attached to? And to think about the disadvantages of attachment. And, you know, really review our lives and, and think very closely what, you know, how has attachment functioned in my life? What has attachment made me do? Now, attachment usually makes us go towards what we want, okay? But sometimes, in the case with people, we might go away from what we want. We want to be with that person, but we go away. We go the other direction, Uh because it's kind of scary getting too close to people, okay? And so we build up walls. I don't want to be vulnerable. I want to be, don't want to be too open. I don't want to have them really see what's going on inside me. Yeah. And we mistake that for not being attached. But that is attachment, okay? Because we're still seeking their approval, their you know, whatever it is, okay? So what we want to arrive at, you know, and this is, is where really compassion comes in, is this is a sentient being just like every other sentient being. And there's somebody to cherish, but to not cherish with attachment, to cherish simply because, yeah, they've been kind to me in previous lives, they'll be kind to me in future lives, they're just like me wanting happiness and not suffering, okay? They have the Buddha nature. So we cherish them, but we don't cherish them for the same reason that we cherish the people we're attached to. We cherish the people we're attached to because they make us feel good. 
basically. Yeah. They make us feel good. It, they, maybe they give us presents. They praise us. They do what we ask. You know, we can brag about them. Who knows? Okay. But they they make us feel good. And that's different than the kind of care for sentient beings that we want to have when we develop uh, compassion. And the compassion that we develop in the Mahayana is for all sentient beings, okay? Not just for the people that we're close to. Because that compassion has to be a cause for the bodhicitta. And if we don't have compassion for all sentient beings, then we, we're not going to want to attain, attain full awakening for their benefit. Yeah. And without having that, then there's no bodhicitta. We leave one sentient being out and we don't have bodhicitta. So we, our full awakening is not possible. Okay. So th- this is, this is, you know, this is heavy duty when you really look at it, isn't it? It's not just simple stuff. So to really transform our mind in that way, it takes uh, a lot of work, okay? Can you see why doing that is something that's beneficial to do before you dedicate all your efforts to uh, generating serenity? Yeah, you can see because otherwise we get attached. Does that mean that we shouldn't do any serenity practice at all now? No, it doesn't mean that. Yeah, we can still try and deepen our our concentration. Yeah, but to attain full serenity, it needs specific uh, conditions, internal and external conditions. Okay. Shall we go on? Through being attached to living beings, I am completely obscured from the perfect reality. My disillusionment with cyclic existence perishes, and in the end, I am tormented by sorrow. Yeah. Shanti Deva is not being sweet and putting it all honey covered, is he? He's telling it like it is. Okay, through being attached to living beings, I am completely obscured from the perfect reality. Why? Yeah, because attachment is based on ignorance, and ignorance apprehends things in the exact opposite way from how they actually exist. Okay. So we're obscured from the perfect reality. My disillusionment with cyclic existence perishes. Yeah, if I had thought a little bit about, you know, wanting to get out of samsara by being attached to living beings, uh, you know, my disillusionment with samsara evaporates. Yeah, we get pulled back by attachment. And we can see this all around us. At, at the Abbey, we, um, 
you know, lots of people say we're, they're going to come and do a retreat or do something with us. And, uh, and then we don't, we don't see them. So we have a, a little saying at the Abbey that you don't believe that somebody's actually here until you see the whites of their eyes. Yeah. Okay. Is that Paul Revere? Who was it that said that? Anyway, we want to see the rights of their eyes, and then we believe. But so many people don't come. Why? Yeah? My dog's sick. My cat is sick. Yeah? My plants are going to die. There's a big, there's a wedding. There's a funeral. There's a... Fourth of July barbecue. Oh, that's, you know, there's, you know, there's always something. Yeah. Yeah. And and we've seen this. And people want to, you know, get ordained and then they fall in love. Somebody once pointed out to me, that the expression fall in love indicates that you do it involuntarily. Like you fall, you trip and you fall, okay? It's not like you choose to trip and fall and clunk your nose, get all marked up. Yeah, but it's, it's like involuntary. So the same it is with falling in love. You're just, you know, you're swept off your feet. Yeah, isn't there? There, there? there you go. You're swept off your feet. You're with Aladdin on his magic carpet, you know, or, or who is it? Um, Peter Pan. Peter Pan takes you away? Or the fairy, there's a fairy angel that takes you away? I'm a little out of date with my, <laughs> my stories. They're somewhere in there from my childhood. But Peter Pan's the one that what? Yeah, Peter Pan, not the 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 guardian fairy. That's when you have your teeth. You you what you miss? Yeah, when you lose your teeth, that's when the fairy comes. Tinker, yeah. So Tinkerbell and and Peter Pan are related, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think Tinder's the modern analogy. Kinder? Pinder? Pinder? No. Kinder? What? It's a dating app. Oh! Yeah. Dating app means you create the image of a person who you are not, but who you try and convince other people you are so that they will think you're wonderful, and then you fall in love with the image they've created of themselves, who they are not, but who they're trying to impress you with thinking they're like that. Sounds like a recipe for living happily ever after, doesn't it? Yeah? I'm going to go back and figure, I can't remember Tinkerbell. (laughs) I remember her, you know, but what was she... How is she related to Peter Pan? Her friend. Their friend? Are you sure? She uses the pixie dust to make you a happy thought. 
Okay, so who gives who the pixie dust? Okay, oh, somebody here with the knowledge that we are seeking. Yes, Peter Pan will take Tinkerbell and spray you with the pixie dust, and the, it's a metaphor for uh, happy thoughts make you happy. Like a, have one happy thought and you'll fly. Okay, and then Tinkerbell flies. Yes, she's inherently happy. Okay, but but <laughs> but. Where did Peter Pan get the dust to spend? Where did he get it? Yeah. From Tinkerbell. So he got the dust from Tinkerbell and then put it back on her. Anyway. But no, she produces it as like, a, as a, it's like, it's like body odor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that we have all of that clear. <laughs> yeah. Things get imprinted in your mind, you know, that you often don't realize until you sit down to meditate. And then there they are. Yeah, Tinkerbell and Peanut Pan. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Where were we? <laughs> By thinking only of them, this life... Uh, no, we were in the previous verse. Through being attached to living beings, I am completely obscured from the perfect reality. My disillusionment with cyclic existence perishes, and in the end, I am tortured by sorrow. Why are we tortured by sorrow? Why do you feel tortured by sorrow if your disillusionment with samsara perishes? Yeah, you're coming. Go ahead, Gashila. Yeah, the, the attachment doesn't get in, uh, decreased at all. It mm -hmm. becomes even more stronger and then uh, develops into craving and then you're caught into the net even stronger. Yeah. Yeah, you, oh, you couldn't hear? Yeah, he was saying that your mind is still a bit, uh, involved with attachment and that attachment leads to craving, and then, you know, the rest is water under the bridge. Okay? So, um, and so then we're still tormented by the craving. Yeah, because we still want more and better, more and better. But one part of our mind is saying, oh, I blew the chance to really practice the path and do something. And I think that's the thing that's dangerous uh, when it really happens at death. You know, you abandon your practice to go search for, for worldly happiness. And then at the time of death, what happens? Regret. You know, oh, I had this opportunity to really work on my mind and to plant the Dharma seeds in my mind and to try and, and nurture them. And instead, I spent it playing video games or, you know, making a lot of money or being a professional athlete or tuba player or, you know, whatever your dream is. And now I'm dying and uh, there's no more chance to do it. And plus, all the visions, 
the karmic visions of actions I've done motivated by attachment. They're all appearing to my mind now when, I, when I'm dying and make me tremendously confused. Okay, so that's the tormented by samsara. I, when I, ever since I, put it, put it this way, ever since I was a little kid, I always felt like I don't want to die with regret. That must be the most awful thing in your life, is to die and have regrets about how you live. So we all make mistakes, and we regret those mistakes. If we learn from the mistakes, then, you know, we're not going to regret at the time of death, because we will have learned from them. We will have purified them. We will have regretted them. Okay? But if we just follow attachment, you know, the donkey with the ring on their, in their nose, and attachment pulling the rope, um, yeah, that's when the regret comes. Because one part of you, you know, maybe you've met the Dharma, but you've stuffed it away because the, the attachment's too strong. And then all of that arises at the time of death. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good uh, wake-up call to make sure in our lives from day to day that we are at peace with what we've done and we are at peace with with other people in our own minds you know we they may be mad at us but at least in our own minds we aren't mad at them okay and so each day to to uh yeah to make peace in our own minds so because we don't know we may die that night okay so questions yeah i'm curious about uh what the difference is between gratitude and attachment can we have gratitude for our parents yeah i mean we're gr- gratitude means somebody benefited us and we yeah we feel grateful to them for what they've given us because we know that they didn't have to do that yeah now you can you can keep it at gratitude or you can use that gratitude as a reason to get attached therefore i don't want to be separated for them Therefore, I want them to continue benefiting me. Therefore, I, you know, I want to do something in return for them, not for anybody else, but specifically for them. Okay, that's when it veers towards attachment. Okay. Uh huh. Thank you for the teachings, Venerable. Um, I'm curious speaking about this uh, withdrawal from worldly attachments and becoming more and more firm in the Dhamma and the holy life, what have you seen be the determining factors in monastics staying in robes or in leaving them? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I know that you've known people who've 
disrobed after a year and then others who have disrobed after 40 years. So what, what would you give us as advice okay. to stay? The, the first reason I see people disrobe is attachment to relationships. They want a romantic relationship. They want, uh, yeah, they want a romantic relationship and the sex that the, the two things, the emotion and the physical thing, they want that. That's the primary one I see. The secondary, the other one that I see, and this is more with Westerners, is um, they don't feel comfortable in the robes. Yeah, they want to. Uh, and it's usually articulated as, I want to benefit sentient beings, but the robes create a wall between me and sentient beings. I don't believe that one. But that's what I hear people say, okay? For Tibetans, I think one of the reasons is attachment to material things. Yeah, they want to, uh, you know, they grew up in, in as refugees in India. And uh, yeah, they want money and they want nice things and things for their family. Thank you. And And what have you seen as the sort of antidotes to that? Like what what keeps someone in robes despite those things? Or what have you seen as, I know Long Proposna said stubbornness, <laughs> but I don't know what your answer would be. Um, what keeps people in robes? Seeing the defects of samsara, nurturing your, your bodhicitta aspiration. Yeah. Um, on a grosser level, just, Looking at your own experience sometimes will do it. You know, like we've all been in romantic relationships, haven't we? We've all been, yeah. And you're head over heels and you're in love. And if it were so great and if it were going to bring us lasting happiness, why are we here right now? If it were really the answer that was going to do it for us, we would be with that person right now. Why aren't we? Well, look at your own experience. Is it always, you know, uh, okay, which fairy tale? Uh, is this Cinderella and, and the prince on the white horse? Is, is, is it always like that? Your own experience. You don't have to look far. <laughs> it's in our own lives already, you know. As they say, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. You know, we've had that. Why? And it hasn't worked. And the fault isn't just that wasn't the right person or it wasn't the right time. You know, like in West Side Story, you know, there's a time and place for us. Remember that song? It pulls your heartstrings. These two people in love and they're just looking to be away from the crypts and the, and the jets so that, so that they can live somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> you know? These songs, I mean, we were raised on them. And, you know, it's like, well, if it were really like that, then how come we're, we're not over the rainbow already, living with them happily ever after? 
as we were told this kids happened. Yeah. See, it's, it, like I said, you just look at your own experience. It's totally evident, you know. And the, But then you have, you say, well, really, it was just that one person. I got to find the other person. That person will do it for me. Really, that person. And then you remember the, the sutta uh, in the Pali Canon where the Buddha is saying, you know, when he was a bodhisattva, you know, essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, if I take refuge in somebody whose mind is overwhelmed by afflictions, and I'm somebody whose mind is overwhelmed by afflictions, how is that going to bring happiness? Yeah. One plus one does not equal perfection in, in that formula. Yeah. If their, if their mind is filled with afflictions, bad deal. If my mind is f- filled with afflictions, worse deal. You know, I'm, ha- I'm harmed, they're harmed, Mara wins. Yeah. Yes, but. <laughs> Not yes, but um, so um, for you, the discernment between deep caring and attachment—you know, deep caring about someone—would be more a sort of a an equality of caring about everyone. I have a friend who was considering being being a monastic, but then she fell in love, and then she decided well, it's not okay for me to love this person more than other people. So she broke up that relationship. Still, Anyway, it goes on like that. But um, she really felt like it was wrong to love one person more than another. Is, is that the monastic ideal? And Okay. If we understand what love means here as meaning attachment, okay, the then, yeah, I mean, being attached to one person over another is going to imprison our mind. What happens is we want to have an equal love for everybody that is not based on how they relate to me because I'm the center of the universe, but based simply simply by the fact that they're, you know, uh, uh, sentient beings. But we relate to people differently according to the role we have with them while we're in samsara. Okay? And that's going to change from one lifetime to the next. So if, uh, you know, you have a child, you are going to take care of that child in a way that you don't take care of the cashier at the supermarket. You know, you you don't bring the diapers when you go to the grocery store and, you know, act the same way. So we act in different ways because we're in different roles. Yeah. But to realize there's no inherently existent person in, in the other person to be attached to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, makes some sense. I'm wondering. I'm wondering about aversion too, because if you if you feel strongly towards someone in aversive in an aversive way, that's also a sort of attachment. No, it's aversion. It's 
it's um, it doesn't attachment is exaggerating the good qualities of somebody. Yeah, animosity, anger is exaggerating their negative qualities. When you have a lot of aversion towards somebody, you are hooked. Okay, I wouldn't necessarily call that attachment because you're not exaggerating their good qualities and being drawn towards them, but you're hooked by, you know, they are a concrete person who is doing some concrete harm to me. Now, okay, yeah, so you're hooked. You're hooked. Yeah. And this is uh, how some people get confused. They think, oh, I have so much aversion to these people, so I don't have any problem with, uh, with attachment and craving. Uh, no. There's one form of craving that craves to be free of what you don't like, and that's what in, what's involved here. You know, it's like, I can't stand this person. I've got to get away from them. Even if they're not there, you can't stand them. You're still thinking about them, you know. Okay, so we have to close now. A lot to think about here. Like I said, Shanti Deva does not uh, baby us. 